Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 104, The Iron Lung. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to discuss yet another groundbreaking medical advancement to come out of Boston, the Iron Lung. Prior to the arrival of the polio vaccination in 1955, this deadly disease was the most feared illness in America. With the invention by two Harvard faculty members, diaphragm paralysis was no longer a death sentence. But before we talk about polio, a quick programming note. This week marks our podcast's second anniversary. The first episode aired on October 30th, 2016. In the meantime, our listenership has grown from a few dozen to a few hundred to a couple thousand our listeners each week. In total, we've had 161,915 downloads since the beginning. Our most downloaded show is episode 80, about Boston's history with pirates, and episode 2, about Cotton Mather and the smallpox vaccine, is a close second. To all our loyal listeners who have been with us from the beginning, and to all those who have tuned in recently, thank you. As we've been saying for the past few weeks, we have a Hub History sticker for you if you want one. Just leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, then email a screenshot or summary in your mailing address to podcast at hubhistory.com, and we'll send you a sticker. And now, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. In honor of Halloween, we're featuring a seasonally appropriate historic site, the Granary Burying Ground. Founded in 1660, the Granary is the third oldest burying ground in Boston. The need for the site arose because the land set aside for the city's first cemetery, King's Chapel Burying Ground, was insufficient to meet the city's growing population. The site was known as the South Burying Ground until 1737, at which point it took on the name of the Granary Building, which stood on the site of the present-day Park Street Church. In May 1830, trees were planted in the area, and an attempt was made to change the name to Franklin Cemetery to honor the family of Benjamin Franklin, but obviously that effort was not successful. The burying ground started as part of Boston Common, which originally encompassed the entire block. The southwest portion of the block was taken for public buildings two years after the cemetery was established, which included the granary and a house of correction, and the north portion of the block was used for housing. Tombs were initially placed near the back of the property. Puritan churches didn't believe in religious icons or imagery, so the people of Boston used tombstones as an outlet for artistic expression of their beliefs about the afterlife. One of the most popular motifs was the soul effigy, a skull or death's head with a wing on each side that was a representation of the soul flying to heaven after death. On May 15, 1717, a vote was passed by the town to enlarge the burying ground by taking part of the street on the eastern side, where Tremont Street is today. The enlargement was carried out in 1720 when 15 tombs were created and assigned to a number of Boston families. After the first round of improvements in 1830, the property was improved again in 1840 by the construction of an iron fence on Tremont Street. The fence was designed by Boston architect Isaiah Rogers, who designed an identical Egyptian revival gateway for a cemetery in Newport. Nikki used to work for a ghost tour company in Boston, so people often ask us for ghost stories about Boston's old cemeteries. The scariest occurrence in the history of the Granary Burying Ground occurred in 2009. 
That January, a previously unknown crypt was discovered when a visitor on a self-guided tour through the cemetery fell through the ground into what appeared to be the stairway leading to a crypt. The stairway had been covered with a piece of slate, which eventually gave way due to advanced age. The crypt is reported to be 8 by 12 feet and is structurally intact. It's possibly the resting place of Jonathan Armitage, a Boston selectman from 1732 to 1733. If you visit the cemetery, you'll find the final resting places of many notable Bostonians, including Paul Revere, the five victims of the Boston Massacre, and three signers of the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, and Robert Treat Payne. Joseph Warren's second final resting place was in the granary, but as our listeners know, he's at Forest Hills today. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a Massachusetts Historical Society brown bag lunch, John Perkins Cushing and Boston's Early China Trade. Cushing was a wealthy Boston sea merchant, opium smuggler, and philanthropist. When his mother died of smallpox, Cushing was raised by his uncle, and in 1803, at age 16, he sailed for China to become a clerk in his uncle's counting house. The head of the firm in China soon fell ill and died at sea. Thus, when Cushing arrived in China, he found himself Perkins and Company's sole agent, remaining there for nearly 30 years. Cushing was said to have managed the affairs of the firm skillfully and was soon taken into partnership. Under Cushing, the firm of Perkins and Company was formally established in Canton in 1806. They imported and traded rice during a famine in China, and during the War of 1812, the family loaned out their money at an interest rate of 18% to other merchants in Canton. When the fur trade diminished, they began searching for a substitute that had once been the foundation of Boston's China trade. The firm focused on opium, and by the 1820s, Cushing was known as the most influential of all the foreigners in Canton, having struck up a close relationship with the merchant Huqua, who, at his death in 1843, was said to be the richest man in the world. In 1820, Cushing brought on his cousin, Thomas Tunno Forbes, to train for the business. Forbes, however, died in 1827 before assuming control of the firm. Cushing, eager for retirement and lacking a suitable replacement, made arrangements to dissolve Perkins & Company by a consolidation with Russell & Company in 1827. Russell & Company had been created by China trader Samuel Russell in 1823. In 1830, Cushing returned to Boston with vast wealth at age 43 to find a wife and start a family. For those of you who listened to our interview with Stephen Ujifusa, these names and places are already familiar. The free lecture, given by Gwen Miller of the College of the Holy Cross, will be held on Wednesday, November 7th from noon to 1 p.m. There are two other upcoming events featuring past Hub History interviewees. Also on the 7th, from 6 to 7.30, Lori Lynn Price will speak on the 1918 flu epidemic in Boston at the Copley branch of the BPL. At the same time, Christian Despina will be speaking about his new book, Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero, at the Mass Historical Society. And now it's time for this week's main topic. We'll start things off with a description of polio from the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. 
Few diseases frightened parents more in the early part of the 20th century than polio did. Polio struck in the warm summer months, sweeping through towns and epidemics every few years. Though most people recovered quickly from polio, some suffered temporary or even permanent paralysis and even death. Many polio survivors were disabled for life. They were a visible, painful reminder to society of the enormous toll this disease took on young lives. Polio was caused by one of three types of polio virus. These viruses spread through contact between people, by nasal and oral secretions, and by contact with contaminated feces. Polio virus enters the body through the mouth, multiplying along the way to the digestive tract where it further multiplies. In about 98% of cases, polio is a mild illness, with no symptoms or with viral-like symptoms. In paralytic polio, the virus leaves the digestive tract, enters the bloodstream, and then attacks nerve cells. Fewer than 1-2% to of people who contract polio become paralyzed. In severe cases, the throat and chest may be paralyzed. Death may result if the patient doesn't receive artificial breathing support. It's likely that polio has plagued humans for thousands of years. An Egyptian carving from around 1400 BCE depicts a young man with a leg deformity similar to one caused by polio. Polio circulated in human populations at low levels and appeared to be a relatively uncommon disease for most of the 1800s. Polio reached epidemic proportions in the early 1900s in countries with relatively high standards of living, at a time when other diseases, such as diphtheria, typhoid, and tuberculosis, were declining. Indeed, many scientists think that advances in hygiene paradoxically led to an increased incidence of polio. The theory is that in the past, infants were exposed to polio, mainly through contaminated water supplies, at a very young age. Infants' immune systems, aided by maternal antibodies still circulating in their blood, could quickly defeat polio virus and then develop lasting immunity to it. However, better sanitary conditions meant that exposure to polio was delayed until later in life, on average, when a child had lost maternal protection and was also more vulnerable to the most severe form of the disease. David M. Oshinsky, a history professor at New York University, director of the Division of Medical Humanities at the NYU Langone Medical Center, and author of Polio, An American Story, describes what life was like prior to the introduction of the polio vaccine in 1955. The public was horribly and understandably frightened by polio. There was no prevention and no cure. Everyone was at risk, especially children. There was nothing a parent could do to protect the family. I grew up in this era. Each summer, polio would come like the plague. Beaches and pools would close because of the fear that the polio virus was waterborne. Children had to stay away from crowds, so they were often banned from movie theaters, bowling alleys, and the like. My mother gave us all a polio test each day. Could we touch our toes and put our chins to our chest? Every stomach ache or stiffness caused a panic. Was it polio? I remember the awful photos of children on crutches, in wheelchairs, and iron lungs, and coming back to school in September to see the empty desks where the children hadn't returned. The worst polio outbreak year in U.S. history took place in 1952, with about 58,000 reported cases. Out of all the cases, 
21,269 were paralyzed and 3,145 died. It's important to note that most people infected with the polio virus had no symptoms. 10% of infected people may experience flu-like symptoms such as fever, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, headaches, and occasionally neck and back stiffness. Less than 1% of the people infected with polio developed severe muscle weaknesses that could affect the limbs, diaphragm muscles, and the head and neck muscles. When we breathe, our rib cage expands and our diaphragm contracts, expanding our chest cavity. This causes the pressure in the chest cavity to decrease and the lungs expand to fill the space. This, in turn, causes the pressure of the air inside the lungs to decrease. It becomes negative relative to the atmosphere and air flows into the lungs. In other words, we inhale. When the diaphragm relaxes, the reverse happens and you exhale. If a person loses part or all of the ability to control the muscles involved, such as during a polio infection, breathing becomes difficult or impossible. In 1670, English scientist John Mayow came up with the idea of external negative pressure ventilation. Mayow built a model consisting of bellows and a bladder to pull in and expel air. The first negative pressure ventilator was described by Scottish physician John Dalziel in 1832. Successful use of similar devices was described a few years later. Early prototypes included a hand-operated, bellows-driven spirifore, designed by a doctor in Paris in 1876, and an airtight wooden box designed specifically for the treatment of polio by a doctor in South Africa in 1918. This box was sealed at the waist and shoulders with clay and powered by motor-driven bellows. These early innovations paved the way for the development of the iron lung by Philip Drinker, professor of industrial hygiene at the Harvard School of Public Health in 1928. At the time, the medical profession had not yet made any significant advancements in the treatment of polio. However, patients who were able to survive the early stages had a good chance of regaining control of their muscles. Nerve impulses could return to the formerly paralyzed muscle within a month, and recovery was usually complete in six to eight months. The neurophysiological processes involved in recovering from polio are quite effective. Muscles are able to retain normal strength even if half the original motor neurons have been lost. As such, preventing suffocation during the period of paralysis was critical. The online Iron Lung Exhibit by the University of Virginia describes a 1929 article entitled The Use of a New Apparatus for the Prolonged Administration of Artificial Respiration in a Fatal Case of Poliomyelitis by Dr. Philip Drinker and pediatric clinician Dr. Charles F. McCann that reported successful clinical testing of the Drinker respirator. The investigators sought to offer all patients suffering from paralytic anterior polio the opportunity to recover normal respiration with the assistance of artificial respiration for several hours, several days, or however long might be necessary. Their study found that manual methods of artificial resuscitation had been ineffective in providing the necessary oxygen interchange and could not be used for extended periods of time. Previous artificial resuscitators, such as the pulmotor, were also poor solutions as their air supplies were too forceful and damaged other organs. Drinker and McCann outlined several main objectives in their respirator design. Long and steady function, 
adaptability to many ages and sizes, the ability to regulate the rate and depth of respiration, and the ability to provide proper artificial respiration without harming the patient. The drinker respirator, or the iron lung, was designed to force paralyzed lungs to breathe. Vacuums sucked out the air of the chamber, causing air to flow in through the patient's mouth and nose, filling the lungs. As the vacuum was released, the lungs fell, and the patient breathed out. Most patients would need the iron lung for a few weeks or months, but for those who were permanently paralyzed, the machine became a fixture in their lives. In an interview with Dr. Mark Rockoff, Vice Chairman of the Anesthesiology Department at Boston Children's Hospital, WGBH described Drinker's invention process. It was developed by an engineer, not a physician, Phil Drinker, Rockoff explained. He was an industrial engineer, a chemical engineer, who was hired at the School of Public Health, mainly to look at industrial problems. In the 1920s, those industrial problems included coal gas poisoning and respiratory failure due to electrocution. And so Drinker set about developing a pressurized chamber with a diaphragm powered by a vacuum cleaner motor that could literally make a body breathe, at least a very small one. It's a very simple concept, Rockoff said. He originally was working with cats in a little tank that he had hand-built, and he did this all by hand. At the time, Harvard School of Public Health was located next door to Boston Children's Hospital, where Drinker regularly saw, firsthand, the devastating effects of polio. He watched these kids come in, get paralyzed, and die, and he was very deeply affected, Rockoff said. And he said, I think I could make a big one and make it work for people. And so Drinker set about scaling up his machine, known first as the Drinker respirator and eventually the iron lung. He tested it on himself, his colleagues, and volunteers. By October 12, 1928, when an eight-year-old girl with acute polio was admitted to Children's Hospital, he had hoped it was ready. She started getting so blue because she couldn't get oxygen and she lost consciousness, Rockoff said. She was about to die. They put her in their device and within minutes she woke up. She was pink. She started talking and soon she was asking for ice cream. It was absolutely revolutionary at the time. Most people who witnessed this were crying when they saw it. Unfortunately, Drinker's success was soon overshadowed. In 1931, John Haven Emerson introduced a less expensive iron lung. The Emerson iron lung had a bed that could slide in and out of the cylinder as needed, and the tank had portal windows which allowed attendants to reach in and adjust limbs, sheets, or hot packs. Drinker and Harvard University sued Emerson, claiming he had infringed on their patent rights. Emerson defended himself by making the case that such life-saving devices should be freely available to all. Emerson also demonstrated that every aspect of Drinker's patents had been published or used by others at earlier times. Since an invention must be novel to be patentable, prior publication or use of the invention meant it was not novel and therefore was unpatentable. Emerson won the case, and Drinker's patents were declared invalid. Technology continued to advance, and the both respirator, a negative pressure ventilator, was invented in 1937 when Australia's epidemic of polio created an immediate need for more ventilating machines 
to compensate for respiratory paralysis. Although the drinker model was effective and saved lives, its widespread use was hindered by the fact that the machines were very large, bulky, and very expensive. The South Australia Health Department asked Adelaide brothers Edward and Don both to create an inexpensive comparable device. Biomedical engineer Edward Both designed and developed a cabinet respirator made of plywood that worked similarly to the drinker device with the addition of a bivalve design, which allowed temporary access to the patient's body. Far cheaper to make than the drinker machine, the Both respirator also weighed less and could be constructed and transported more quickly. Demand was so high that they were often used by patients within an hour of production. Of course, everything changed with the development of the first effective polio vaccine in 1952 by Jonas Salk and a team at the University of Pittsburgh. This vaccine used inactivated virus particles that were grown in culture and killed before injection. Salk's vaccine was used in a test called the Francis Field Trial, led by Thomas Francis, the largest medical experiment in history at that time. The test began with about 4,000 children at Franklin Sherman Elementary School in McLean, Virginia, and eventually involved 1.8 million children in 44 states. By the conclusion of the study, roughly 440,000 received one or more injections of the vaccine, about 210,000 children received a placebo, and 1.2 million children received no vaccination and served as a control group. The results of the field trial were announced on April 12, 1955. The Salk vaccine had been 60 to 70 percent effective against poliovirus type 1, over 90 percent effective against poliovirus 2 and poliovirus 3, and 94 percent effective against the development of bulbar polio. However, in April of 1955, soon after mass polio vaccination began in the U.S., the Surgeon General began to receive reports of patients who contracted paralytic polio about a week after being vaccinated with the Salk polio vaccine from the Cutter Pharmaceutical Company. The paralysis was limited to the limb that the vaccine was injected into. In response, the Surgeon General pulled all polio vaccines made by Cutter Laboratories from the market, but not before 250 cases of paralytic illness had occurred. The Wyeth polio vaccine was also reported to have paralyzed and killed several children. It was soon discovered that some lots of Salk polio vaccine made by Cutter and Wyeth had not been properly inactivated, allowing live poliovirus into more than 100,000 doses of the vaccine. In May, the National Institutes of Health and Public Health Services established a technical committee on the polio vaccine to test and review all polio vaccine lots and advise the Public Health Service as to which lots should be released for public use. These incidents reduced public confidence in the polio vaccine, leading to a drop in vaccination rates. At the same time that Salk had been testing his vaccine, both Albert Sabin and Hilary Kaprowski continued working on developing a vaccine using live virus, and both eventually succeeded. Because of the commitment to the Salk vaccine in America, Sabin and Kropowski both did their testing outside of the U.S. Sabin in Mexico, and then in the Soviet Union, and Kaprowski in the Congo and Poland. In 1957, Sabin developed a trivalent vaccine containing attenuated strains of all three types of poliovirus. In 1959, 
10 million children in the Soviet Union received the Sabine oral vaccine. Sabine's oral vaccine, using live virus, came into commercial use in 1961. And once the oral vaccine became widely available, it supplanted Salk's injected vaccine, which had been tarnished in the public's opinion by the Cutter incident. In the U.S., following a mass immunization campaign promoted by the March of Dimes, the annual number of polio cases fell from 35,000 in 1953 to just 5,600 by 1957. By 1961, only 161 cases were recorded in the U.S. By the end of 2017, it was estimated that three iron lung users remain in the U.S. A Gizmodo article describes Marta Lillard's machine, which gives you a sense of how challenging it is to operate and rely on rare antique devices. Her iron lung has portholes and windows on the side a pressure gauge at the top. The machine is actually cobbled together from two iron lungs. One, the March of Dimes gave her when she was a child. The other she bought from someone in Utah, after she haggled him down from $25,000 to $8,000. The body has also been modified over the years. Her grandfather invented a motorized pulley system that closes the bed tray into the tank after she climbs in. He also replaced the brushed aluminum mirror above the neck slot with a real mirror so that she could have a clear view to the rest of the room when she's locked in the canister. A local engineer used a motor from an old voter registration device to build a mechanism that tightens the collar around her neck after she slips her head through the portal. The fan belts and half-horsepower motor have been replaced about ten times. These days, her biggest concern is the canvas spiral collar that creates the seal around her neck. She used to have to replace them every few months after they wore out and stopped keeping a seal. Back then, she could get them for a few dollars each. But she recently bought two from Respironics for a little more than $200 each. She said the company wouldn't sell her anymore because they only have 10 left. For years, she's been trying to find someone to make a new collar. She uses Scotchgard on her current supply and tries not to move her neck around, hoping to make them last as long as possible. I asked her what happens if she runs out. Well, I die, she said in a matter-of-fact tone. So we're going to say it again. Vaccinate your kids, people. Last year, there were 37 cases reported in Afghanistan, Nigeria, and Pakistan. Walter A. Orenstein, former director of the United States National Immunization Program, tells NPR, As long as polioviruses circulate anywhere there is the potential that the virus can be exported to the U.S. The best way to reduce that risk is to ensure that our population is fully immunized in accordance with the recommendations of the Centers for Disease Control's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and, in addition, travelers to areas where polio is endemic or epidemic should receive at least one additional dose of the vaccine. Long-term residents of polio-exporting countries, that is, countries which have exported poliovirus in recent years, should receive a dose of polio vaccine at least four weeks prior to travel outside of their country and no more than 12 months prior to travel. During the period when Jonas Salk developed the inactivated polio vaccine, or IPV, there was not much opposition to vaccines. People were genuinely scared about polio and the annual epidemics, which, 
During the early 1950s paralyzed more than 15,000 people each year in the U.S., IPV was viewed as a miracle. I remember being in second grade when the Salk polio vaccine was licensed and there was to be a vaccination campaign in my school. I was none too thrilled about getting a shot for something I knew nothing about. I remember my mother saying to me, better you should cry than I should cry. That's how much appreciated the vaccine was. Vaccines are, in a sense, victims of their own success. Diseases which caused so much fear years ago cause little fear today because today's parents have never seen such cases. They are artifacts of history to them. But because all of the infections prevented by vaccines still circulate somewhere in the world, there is the potential of major resurgences should the pathogens be reintroduced into populations with low vaccination coverage. It is incumbent for all of us who know something about vaccines to better educate our population regarding the risks of vaccine-preventable diseases, the benefits of the vaccines which prevent them, the risks of the vaccines and how they compare with the benefits, and the system in place to assure that the vaccines we use are safe and effective. Vaccinate your children. To learn more about the Boston roots of the iron lung, Check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 104. We'll have photos and diagrams of the iron lung, as well as links to all the articles mentioned in this episode. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. Thank you to our listeners who gave us a mention recently. Tim, in response to our interview with J.L. Bell, said, Congrats. Great episode. For any teachers... I made a curriculum about the British occupation of Boston that explicitly connects it to the Black Lives Matter movement. We'll link to Tim's curriculum in this week's show notes. A listener named Kayla hit us up on Twitter after our interview with Christian Despina. When we were describing our featured historic site, Forest Hill Cemetery, we included writer William Dawes on our list of prominent burials at Forest Hills. Kayla said, I love this episode, however... I was always told on my many Freedom Trail tours that William Dawes was buried in King's Chapel burying ground. Now I'm confused. For a long time, people thought that was true, but more recently, evidence has come to light that William Dawes was actually never buried in the Dawes family tomb at King's Chapel. He was initially interred at Central Burying Ground alongside his first wife, Mehitable May Dawes, in her family's tomb, despite the fact that his second wife was still alive then. Then in 1836, the remains in the May family tomb were moved to the granary, and again in 1882, 31 sets of remains, including William Dawes, were moved from granary burying ground to Forest Hills. We'll include the link to the research we sent to Kayla in this week's show notes. While listening to our interview with Christian Despina, Michelle tweeted, Halfway through this episode, and I already want to listen again. New obsession. Mercy Scully. And Christian sounds nothing like I expected, but good. But a guy from New York should not tease about Dr. Warren's accent. We got a double dose of feedback from one of my IRL coworkers. Somebody I've known at work for over a decade came up to me the other day and asked if I had a podcast. Turns out she'd been to a live taping of the podcast My Favorite Murder in Medford, and the topic for the evening was the Parkman murder. During the introduction, hosts Karen and Georgia mentioned that they had gotten some of their sources from a local history podcast called Hub History. 
I got a lot of info from the internet, but also uh, you guys have a local history podcast called Hub History, and they have a lot of good info on that too. So, fucking shout out to them. Okay. Hey, that's us. So after the live show, my coworker Jen decided that she should check out this Hub History show and see if it's any good. After a few minutes, she realized that one of the voices sounded familiar. And then after a few more minutes, she realized it was me. Hey, Jen, thanks for listening. And thanks to Karen and Georgia at My Favorite Murder as well. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. And if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with the story of Mrs. Mack from Wellesley to the Waves. (laughs) 